For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, part two of an investigation into the international success of basis schools. Go backstage at the live theater workshop's new production and an essay about things a hurricane can leave behind. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Last week, we heard how BASIS went from a single charter school in Tucson to an international network. Arizona Daily Star investigative reporter Yu Yan Zhang spent months looking into the school system, how it works, and how it's funded. This week, she reports on challenges some families face getting access to a BASIS education and the rigor behind its glowing reputation. On an April morning, Onita Perkel drove all the way from her Scottsdale home to the Arizona State Capitol in downtown Phoenix. The mother of two had something she wanted to say to state lawmakers. I'm here because I was hoping to have my story heard. Her story is actually about her daughter Bree and how school choice and its promises for success let her down. Bree has ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and dyslexia. She struggled a lot in two different basis schools. Her mother spent months fighting with her schools to get her help. It didn't come soon enough, though, her mother says, and the experience left Bree feeling worthless. In its race to the top, BASIS left behind a trail of students who felt shortchanged by the network. They include students who are most costly to educate, including those with disabilities, those who are learning English as a second language, or who are from low-income backgrounds. BASIS, as a public charter school, must serve all students who come through its doors. But parents and educators have continually criticized BASIS for what they call cherry-picking or weeding out of students. Eileen Sigmund, the executive director of Arizona Charter Schools Association, says those claims are not true. You're assuming there is an issue. Um, instead of looking at the facts and the data, um, BASIS is opened in South Phoenix to make sure that, and actively recruited to make sure students in our South Phoenix community accessed an excellent education. So here are the facts as we know it. The numbers are from the 2014 to 2015 school year, which is the most recent public data available. Things could have very much changed since then, and BASIS says they have, but there are no more recent numbers available yet. So we'll update when National Center for Education Statistics releases new data. The available data shows the average enrollment for students with disabilities was less than 2% across BASIS Arizona schools. The national average that year was 13%. And although data shows there were just six English language learners in BASIS Arizona charter schools that year, BASIS says there were actually 28. That's about 0.3%, which is still much lower than the national average of 9.4%. But BASIS CEO Peter Bazanson says that number has been improving in recent years. A network-wide effort to open more elementary schools has helped and there's been more outreach to Spanish-speaking families. Most BASIS charter schools don't offer subsidized lunch or transportation. 
Its Washington, D.C. and South Phoenix campuses are the only ones that participate in free or reduced lunch. Of 551 students at the D.C. campus, 17% were eligible for free or reduced price lunches, when more than half of public school students in the U.S. were eligible. Besanson says BASIS does not turn away students. Anybody can apply. There's, we broadcast open enrollment windows. We have massive numbers of applications and wait lists every year. The BASIS network has faced especially sharp criticism in regards to its special education. The U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights opened an investigation on BASIS special education practices after a teacher filed a complaint in 2014. The teacher wrote in the complaint that she and others were told BASIS would not modify its curriculum for students with disabilities. She was also told that students are failed or retained if they are unable to master their curriculum without modifications. Besanson says that's not true. BASIS does modify the curriculum, but ultimately, the goal is to help every student, with or without a disability, reach BASIS rigorous requirements. So in other words, we might increase the amount of time or, or do something different with math curriculum in the middle school to better prepare them for calculus in the high school. BASIS volunteered to a resolution agreement in lieu of a full investigation, which isn't to say they're assuming guilt. An education department spokesman says the case is still being monitored. This is my journal. It says believe. It's got stars on it. I got a page that 11-year-old Brie Perkel is energetic and bouncy. On top of ADHD and dyslexia, Brie has severe anxiety attacks. Those conditions make it difficult for her to keep on task. Sometimes she had trouble just sitting still, and her mother says Brie would often get scolded for that in school. Brie used to have a 504 plan, which grants certain modifications for students with disabilities under a federal law. That was when Brie went to Basis Phoenix Central. For fourth grade, she moved to Basis Scottsdale Primary, a newer school that's closer to home. Her mother liked the head of school there, but that person quit not long after. And then it was more of the same. She says she'd ask for curriculum or homework modifications, and more often than not, get rejected. We had some issues there, them just not addressing with her. You know, they would say, we would sit down and say, oh, well, we're going to get a checklist for her so that she won't forget, you know, or, and then there would be no follow-up. And then I would go to the SPED coordinator and I'd say, where's the follow-up? Oh, I don't, let me get back to you. And it was just this, this went on for an entire year. Finally, Perkel decided to pursue an individual education program for Brie. The IEP, as it's commonly known, is a more comprehensive blueprint for a child's special education under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. She did that in December 2015. And so began a grueling and sometimes hostile process to get on the same page with the school, Perkel says. An initial plan must be in place within 60 days of the first IEP meeting. Nothing was signed until May 12th of 2016. In the meantime, Brie continued to struggle. I never got time for fun. I was always doing homework. I would come home and cry. I just didn't have fun there. I never gave, I never gave room to fun because I was just really stressed out because I get a lot of anxiety and I, and I have panic attacks and I, and I just start crying nonstop and it's really hard. 
Raquel ended up filing a complaint with the Arizona Department of Education, which investigated the case and found the school did not provide a proper initial placement statement. And as a result, Basis was ordered to pay for compensatory services, and the school's special education coordinator was required to attend a dispute resolution course. I think where I got to was I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't spend this much time emailing teachers on two fronts, two different schools, and hoping for a different outcome. Because ultimately, every time I sat down in a meeting, it was the same thing. It was, we just want the child to be accountable. Perkel says she's not done fighting, though. She's determined not to have any other child go through what her daughter went through. That's why she showed up to the state capitol that April morning. She didn't stay long enough for her story to be read by State Representative Rebecca Rios. She had to go pick up Brie from school. But her friend had stayed behind and recorded videos. And it has to stop one way or another. Raquel is sitting in front of a computer in her living room as moving pictures of our state legislators flash by. Some are rolling their eyes, others are walking out. But this is ridiculous. That's what it's like to get your voice heard. Peter Bazanson, the BASIS CEO, says the network's philosophy is that any child willing to work hard can succeed at a higher level. The number one part of the, the secret sauce for BASIS is to have high expectations for kids and then not to lower the bar, but to say, like, you can do it. Some of those high expectations include advanced placement courses and exams. Those allow high school students to get entry-level college credit in advance. In order to graduate, BASIS high school students are required to take at least eight AP college-level courses and six AP exams. But few students settle for the minimum. In 2016, BASIS students graduated with an average of 11.5 AP exams. Some graduates take as many as 20, compared with a national average of about 1.8 among students who take AP. Not all do and they begin taking AP courses as early as eighth grade, although the College Board, which administers those, says juniors and seniors are best positioned to take them. It's also quite rigorous to move on to the next grade. Students in grades one through five must earn 60% or higher in their final grades for every subject to be promoted. Starting in sixth grade, students have to pass comprehensive exams for all subjects. But droves of research say grade retention has no real benefit, academic or otherwise. The National Association of School Psychologists says schools should seek alternatives to help address specific instructional needs of students who struggle. With the way the basis curriculum is set up, though, Bazanson says it makes no sense for a kid to move on to the next grade without having mastered the content of the previous grade. I mean, that's just, that's inhumane. I mean, it's setting the kid up for failure or it's setting the school up to be, uh, to be a joke. He also says there are opportunities to make up failed comprehensive exams. And few kids are actually retained, though there may be parents who pull their kids out mid-year to avoid failing. Bazanson says basis education is truly transformative. At least it was for his own daughter, 
who he says used to have lower than average interest in academics. That kid has been transformed in just one month of basis fifth grade. This is her first year here. She's now the sort of kid that when we drive, or if we drive somewhere, she wants to bring her math book. And she's doing it out of a real interest in doing well. He says that's because basis teaches children to love learning. Brad Michelson's daughter, Kate, has found that to be true. She's a really kind of kind-hearted, um, determined, hardworking kid. Tried the athletic thing that really wasn't her favorite thing to do, although she's, you know, she's active and everything else, but she's not an athlete at this point in time. She's more of a student, and uh, she really enjoys the school. She loves the school. She likes the challenge, her father says, and her desire to learn is supported by teachers who are experts in their fields. Michelson says he and his wife have made the commitment to support their daughter as much as they can in her academic endeavor. Thankfully, he says Kate is very self-motivated. She makes her own decisions about what classes to take and does just fine navigating on her own. It also helps that Michelson works from home and he and his wife take shifts so that someone is almost always there for her. I can't speak to parents who work 80 hours a week with three kids. I don't know how they go to high school. <laughs> I can't necessarily square that circle for you. People can choose to come to us because of who we are. That's the basis CEO, Peter Bazanson again. When people choose to leave us to go somewhere else, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, we want to keep as many kids as we can, but the key to the school choice movement is choice. And a student leaving us to go to another school has exercised their choice. Julie Erfley's older son had a great experience at Basis Phoenix. He had tested into a gifted program at his previous school and enjoyed the rigor at Basis. She says it's great to have a specialized school for gifted children. Her older son was one of them until he decided he wanted a more traditional high school experience with prom and football and things like that. But would it have worked for her younger son who has a learning disability and dyslexia? She says no, it wouldn't have. She didn't feel that basis schools were a place that an average kid could get enough help to succeed, much less one with disabilities. Where I get upset is when our lawmakers, especially our legislators and our governor, choose to look at basis as a model for all schools. It is not. It is not representative of the general population. Natalie Lakaitis, a spokeswoman for the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, says in states where charter schools aren't even allowed, parents may face situations where the only neighborhood school is not right for them, but they couldn't afford to go to a private school. She says the fact that families can decide they don't want to go to basis for whatever reason is an example of how school choice has progressed. As her daughter Bree plays the piano, Onita Perkel wonders if more choice is necessarily better because she knows behind the apparent success of basis, there are kids like Bree who felt pushed out of the glory of it all. Some parents think it's the best thing to happen to education. I think it's the worst thing to happen to education. I, I see the dismantling of transparency and accountability and equality for all students.
Arizona Public Media, the Arizona Daily Star, and Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, I'm Yuhyun Jung. Every fall, Tucson's blend of cultures allows us to observe the Day of the Dead, Halloween, and All Souls Day in unique and often complementary ways. Throughout October, the Live Theater Workshop presents a spooky but family-friendly musical that explores the roots of one of those traditions. Written and directed by Michael Martinez, Dia de los Muertos is a musical in English and Spanish with wild costumes, puppets, and a few lessons about accepting death and loss as important parts of life. I went backstage to talk with Martinez and some of the cast about Dia de los Muertos. I've always been really interested in death. As an 18-year-old kid, I was reading Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and being a volunteer at hospice. And I never really had a good way to understand or explain why that was interesting to me until I started to really be part of the El Dia de los Muertos festivities in Tucson, which really spoke to me. I spent a little time living in Mexico And so when I had this opportunity to create this show, I was fearful at first that it was going to be dark and scary, but suddenly I realized, I found the point for me was that this holiday really is about celebrating life. And so an interesting thing happens in this story is that we we go into the land of the dead and we get to see, kind of imagine what El Dia de los Muertos would be like for the people on the other side. And it turns out that it's really similar. It's about celebrating life. I think we forget to talk about death in our culture. And this is the theme and the teachable moment for this show, is that we get to bring a fun, silly, musical performance to families. But we also get to talk about death in an interesting way, and a way that families can sit down afterwards and talk about what that means and what that meant when a pet died and if it's final or what. It just is a great conversation starter on top of being a really fun and interesting performance. You gave me chills when you said that we see what it's like from the other side. I had never really considered that before. So give me an example. Describe a moment in the play or a character, something that you feel exemplifies what the other side is like in this production. There is a moment when the goddess of the land of the dead, Mixteca Siwatl, she is faced with this living girl who has somehow made her way into the land of the dead. And they kind of don't gel. They don't like each other's worlds very much. And something that the goddess of the dead really wasn't aware of is that there's this whole group of people and culture in the land of the living that is celebrating her and celebrating life and the people who have passed on and it's just a moment for her to realize that not everybody thinks of death as a scary dark place that's skeletons and darkness without beauty she has to teach herself and this young girl that there's beauty in darkness tengo una solución perfecta necesitamos que 
Grito, what are you doing? Why are you acting so weird? I, I didn't want to interrupt your plan. It's just that... Uh, uh, <gasps> Where's Juana? Where did that know-it-all girl go? How did she get away from you? The man? Well, I feel like a lot has happened since you left. What Introduce yourself happened? for me, tell me the name of the character you play, and give me three words, in English or Spanish, that describe him. My name is Jonathan Eras. My character's name is Grito. And the three words that I would use to describe him would be simple, uh, mixed up, y con un corazón de oro. Heart of gold. Heart of gold. And it's more than three words, that's, I guess. That's but. okay. That's three, okay. Yeah. Same question for you, please. Introduce yourself and tell me your character's name and three words that describe her. I'm Maria Gallardo, and my character's name is Santa Muerte, or Mixte Catsiwatl. I would say compassionate, um, goddess, and motherly. Maybe not what you'd expect from right. the goddess right. of the dead. How is it working in both English and Spanish? Have you had a chance to do this much before, or is this something new? <laughs> this is something new. <laughs> I actually used to teach a bilingual uh, class, and it's been a long time, so I had to brush up on the Spanish again. Um, it's come back pretty well, and, uh, and I love it, especially the singing in Spanish. It just works really well, so we're able to actually um, say what we want to say in English, make it make sense in Spanish, and uh, luckily... I speak both languages, you know, it took me forever to learn English, but luckily I learned it pretty well, and now uh, we're able to speak back and forth, you know, with, with uh, some good ease, you know, because of the writing. What about your costume? How are you going to appear on stage? The costume is, uh, to me, it's like a mixture of like a mummy and like a skeleton kind of put together, like in every which way. The bones were kind of just thrown onto this guy. Did working on this play force you to confront any memories or any of your sort of primal ideas about death? I lost my brother when I was 16 years old, and ever since then, my thing was every time I see a hummingbird, that's him visiting or that kind of a thing, and yet now it's actually one of my lines, a hummingbird hovering above the grave, and so it, it actually brought it to life for me. So these things where I'm able to celebrate those that have passed versus, um, I guess before I learned about Dia de los Muertos, it was all about somebody passing away in the funeral, and then you just remember them, and then that's it, whereas Dia de los Muertos, it's a yearly Thing that we get to celebrate and um, you know I see my cousins um, celebrating more in New York City where my, my cousin who had passed away they were putting his favorite mangoes on the altar and and the, the watermelon and the you know this and that and those were all of his favorite things so I see other family members celebrating and so it makes me want to do it even more that helps me connect to my character a little bit more and it's not just going through the motions but I, it actually gives it meaning for me. I think death is a it's one of those things, Elephant in the Room, we don't like to talk about it. Things happen and, you know, when, when somebody goes through that experience, we don't really know what to say sometimes or, we don't, you know, we don't know how to console them at, at times. You know, we just do our best. I've experienced, um, you know, uh, death in the family or friends or, you know, I like the fact that with my character development, um, I was able to think, like, maybe I would be somebody like Grito, you know, kind of a, a loving, fun-loving person. If, uh, you know, if I were to go down to the land of the dead, what would I be like down there? You know, he's kind of a goober, so I think I'd be the same way. I wouldn't be like this big tough guy who's now dead trying to like, hey, hey, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't want to intimidate anybody. I'd just be like him, trying to make friends, you know, because it's maybe it's just another chapter in life. Yeah.
was your best crescendo yet. We should always have someone recording. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to writer and director Michael Martinez and the cast and crew of Dia de los Muertos. It runs through November 5th at the Live Theater Workshop on East Speedway between Rosemont and Craycroft. Author and wildlife illustrator Beth Serdit now calls Tucson home, but she's lived in many places. This year's violent hurricane season led her to recall a time more than a decade ago when she learned some wisdom about surviving the storms. Soon after I moved to Sarasota, Florida in January 2005, months before hurricane season, I was welcomed into a writing group an hour south in Punta Gorda. In August of 2004, Hurricane Charlie had swirled and crushed and ripped through there so fiercely that parts of town looked like there'd been a war. Sitting around under the stars, poets and songwriters offered me moonshine and story after story about surviving Charlie. Sort of. When you watch your house blow away, when you take cover in the bathroom, with your kid and your dog as your roof rips off. What remains is PTSD. I said, I just moved here. Should I turn tail and run now? They chuckled and someone said, Nah, but you should move down here with us. And when the time comes, we'll tell you which way to run. Except the fierceness can change course in an instant and you might be running right into danger, not away from it. So you hear hunker down a lot. I am not, by nature and design, a warrior, but the uncertainty of hurricane season, the planning, second-guessing, preparation, and knowledge that it could be all for naught is like a festering tiny splinter that you'll never quite dig out. But let me tell you about the river. Join us next week on Spotlight for a new episode of The Art of Paying Attention. Beth Serdit takes us into the waters of Florida's Mayaca River to paddle alongside its most famous and formidable inhabitants, alligators. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.